Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climate Consulting. In this week's episode, I chat with Phil Rolf, UK managing partner of Valcon. Now, as you will hear, in this conversation, Phil has had a hugely varied career and one that's seen him go from industry into consulting, back into industry and back into consulting. And that's given him a really unique perspective, some fantastic career lessons. And we dive into all of that in today's conversation. To give you a little snippet, a little window into Phil's journey and what you're about to hear about and learn from, he started actually as an accountant. And after qualifying, it was a chance meeting that resulted in a role at KPMG. During his time with the Big Four Giant, he was involved in the NatWest and RBS integration, which, as his team's program came to an end, led to him being offered a job to join RBS full-time. That saw him then go from a team of just 100 to over his 11 years with the firm, leading a team of 2,000 globally and working in a brand new specialism for him, an area focused on financial crime, something that actually then led him back into consulting when 
having had a fantastic time with RBS, decided he wanted to launch his own financial crime consultancy, FS101. Before long, he was approached by P2 Consulting, who ultimately bought his company, brought him in to lead their financial crime business. And over the next few years, he worked his way up the firm, ultimately becoming CEO. In December 2021, P2 was acquired by Valcon, where Phil now leads the UK team as their UK managing partner. As I said, that is a hugely wide-ranging career, a hugely wide-ranging journey. And as you no doubt expect, Phil had tons of valuable advice to offer to you at whatever level you are in your career. In terms of what we discussed today, we talk about that move from consulting to industry back again and why Phil believes all consultants should consider spending some time in an industry role to really understand their clients. We talk about the importance of recognizing when you're not the smartest person in the room and knowing when you should rely on the expertise of the people around you. We explore that journey that Phil went on at RBS and how he was able to go from that team of 100 to a team of over 2,000 and actually how that's informed his leadership style and his approach today. And finally, we talk about the value of being open to opportunities and why saying yes is critical when considering a new career move. In fact, there is so much in this episode that as you've probably garnered by this already lengthy intro, it is almost impossible to summarize. Whether you're starting out in your consulting career or you're thinking of making that jump from consulting to industry or back again, this episode has got something in it for you. So with the intro done, all that's left to say is please enjoy today's conversation with Phil Rolfe. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, and thank you for inviting me to your office. It's, I know we were just talking about the changes since COVID, and it's nice to be in person again. Yeah, definitely. And so I think to kick us off, before we dive into your journey, because I know there's a lot for us to talk about, it'd be great if you could share an overview of your career and, and how you got to where you are today. Okay, yeah, happy to. Uh, I guess it started at um, Bristol Poly, as it was, University of West, West England now. I did accounts and finance and then went on to a graduate trainee scheme. I know they're still out there and really useful. And I was doing uh, accountancy picked up by Eagle Star, which was subsequently turned into Zurich. Worked with them, qualified as an accountant, did lots of projects as part of my kind of management accounting role. And then I worked with Tillinghast, um, who are really great consultancy who kind of showed me what consultancies could do and I really enjoyed that but I subsequently moved to London still with Eagle Star setting up a life and pensions business as their accountant which again was great fun working out of setting up cardboard boxes and uh, just setting it up for nothing to sort of two or three hundred people after sort of the move to London I then started looking around for consultancy stuff and was lucky enough to bump into KPMG who had sort of the sort of graduate trainee roles going so I moved in to be a consultant with them and spent four or five years with them all over the place really lots in the UK but also in Europe and the Middle East which was great fun sort of in my 20s just bombing about you know living in London and working all over the place the last gig I did with KPMG was working on the NatWest RBS integration. So it's a huge thing and obviously massive for the organizations. And they approached me uh, at the end of that and offered me what they called at the time the, a proper job. So I went to work for the group head of change, looking after mortgages, collections, recoveries, doing just like massive programs of change in a bank, you know, a very big bank as it was uh, back then. We 
yeah, just delivering projects for them uh, across a number of years. I moved around with RBS. I was with them for 11 years in total, but moved around all over the place and just kept kind of picking up new opportunities. So through the crash, I was working for the COO, which was quite an interesting time to be there. And ultimately after that, they had an opportunity when they'd taken over ABN AMRO to go and work in the Netherlands uh, with the ABN AMRO team and learn all about financial crime, which is quite new and exciting. So I moved to the Netherlands with my family and jumped in there, learned, you know, as much as I could. And ultimately, we took their best practices and copied them all around the world. We had teams in Poland, Singapore, India, America. So it was quite fun. And it meant we could travel quite a bit. They asked me to take on reconciliations as well and investigations, as well as data management. So my team just kind of expanded and expanded, got to the point where I thought it was time to leave. So I resigned from RBS and set up my own company, ran that for about a year, and then was approached by P2 Consulting, who I had bumped into before, and they seemed to like what I was doing. And so they offered to buy my company and give me a bit of theirs, which is very kind of them. Ran financial services for them for a couple of years, then was asked to be CEO of P2. Ran P2 for a couple of years, and during that time, we ran a dual track kind of program looking for our next private equity backer. And ultimately, we um, were lucky to find Valcon and joined with Valcon in December 2021. And they asked me to be managing partner of the UK, which is how we get here. Well, that is a very succinct overview for what I think, as you said, is sort of packing 25 years into about two and a half minutes yeah. there, Phil. So lots for us to unpack. And yeah. I think starting because it, it really piqued my interest and in actually thinking of some of our listeners who will be deciding whether to make that move from consulting to industry was your first proper job. I do want to come on to actually the teams because I know, you know, in what you're explaining there, you, you very quickly took on some huge teams. But to start with, actually, I'd be really keen to dig into that decision to move because obviously RBS, as you said, had approached you about a proper job. That's what they wanted at the time. Obviously, I suspect you were weighing up all consulting, there's upside, you know, you could be on the partner track in a few years, there's a variety. Starting there, just, I'd love to know what was it that made you take that role and, and any questions or, or sort of considerations you had before making that move into industry? Yeah, I, I, you know, made a lot of friends at KPMG. I still in touch with quite a few of them now, and some of them have gone on to have great success across a number of different consultancies. It was definitely something I, was, I could have considered, but I didn't really want to kind of stay at KPMG and fight my way up alongside everybody else because it was you know it is a pyramid it's a, a Christmas tree or a pyramid depending which way you look at it and I thought that getting industry experience would be valuable to me no matter what I wanted to do next too many times you bump into ivory tower consultants who've never done anything else but consulting and they'll always tell you about what they're you know what they've done for other companies as opposed to what they did themselves and so for me it was important at that time to do something for myself and you know actually be accountable for the end solution and be accountable for what you built and delivered as opposed to just being helping other people deliver those solutions and it was a really interesting job it was you know i, I liked the company i really liked the, the leadership team um, when i joined and yeah it just sounded like a, a set of interesting challenges with a you know a company that was you know busy and interesting it makes a lot of sense. I love, by the way, I've heard pyramid. I've never heard Christmas tree, <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I love the metaphor. And going into that role, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you went from sort of mid, mid-level mid consultant at KPMG in, into running, I think it was a team about 100 people at RBS. 
that feels like quite a wholesale shift. I'd love to start there with actually how you navigated that move because you'd have been running teams at KPMG, but I suspect that was quite a bigger team. And like you said, suddenly you're on the other side of the fence with a whole different set of people with different goals, different challenges, et cetera. How, how did you find that? And almost how did you find your feet in those early days? It was, it was definitely difficult because there are a lot of the people have been there a long time. You know, I was working with people who were working in change management for you know, 10, 15, 20 years and have been part of the bank probably RBS because it was in Scotland. So they, they had real heritage. So it was quite tricky coming in into that space. But they also had an awful lot of knowledge. And I think the fact that I didn't pretend I knew more than them was quite helpful. So I was more than willing to just listen and learn and provide the frameworks for them to deliver as opposed to telling them what to do. And I think that's the key is, you know, you can't expect to be the smartest person in the room, particularly when you walk into an organization, you're brand new and everyone else has been there forever. So I sat around, you know, a, a, a change table with about a dozen people across the whole bank running all of the change portfolios. And that was fascinating as well. Again, some had been there for quite a long time and knew their way around and others like me didn't. So it was it was a really good experience. But I think it just taught me to, you know, rely on the people around you because they're likely to know a lot more than you about the successes and the failures of the past. So it was different. It was moving from London to Edinburgh and taking over a team that was fairly well established, but giving it structure and then really fighting for investment so that we could go on and deliver the projects that, you know, the business and, you know, our customers wanted us to do, I think. I didn't realise there was the move as well, because I guess that also, you were then an sort of Englishman up in Scotland, which I imagine came with its own, own I, challenges as well. I learned an awful lot of history very quickly. And that point around sort of not pretending you knew more or trying to you know, assert that authority and really listening to, to those colleagues, is that something that just came naturally to you? Was that something that you had to learn? Because I think particularly for younger consultants, when you've been brought up in a role where you are expected to be the expert, it can be quite hard to kind of shed those clothes. I'd be interested if, again, that was just something natural to you or if, if that was something you really had to learn to do. I think I'd just seen it. So I'd seen the good leaders at KPMG, for example, would come in and utilize the experts around them. So again, they wouldn't pretend that they were, they knew about the organization. They would provide the framework, the structure, the controls, the, you know, the clarity of direction. They would draw on the SMEs around them, the social matter experts around them. So I think that worked. And also, you know, I probably bumped into a few people quite hard when I first moved up because I did think I knew more than them. But it doesn't take long to realise that, you know, you've got to take a, you know, a, a different approach. I was about 30 at the time. So um, maybe I was starting to learn that at that time. And as I understand it, that team then scaled quite quickly. This is, we'll, we'll go on to the ABM and row piece because I know that's a huge jump as well. But my understanding is your team then scaled up to sort of 500 people. And how did that affect your leadership style and, and approach? Was it more of the same, more listening, more, more kind of providing those frameworks? Or were there some key things that did fundamentally change as you made that shift and, and how did you navigate it successfully? Yeah, we were running the mortgages program, which is an enormous program for the bank and the industry. And it hoovered up a lot of investment from, you know, around the, the table. But I, I think the best thing was that I had a, a small leadership team who, you know, took on the major parts of the program. So I had someone looking at collection recoveries, an excellent lady called Leslie, and, you know, one or two people looking at the mortgages side from a BAU and from a change point of view. So I, I think I was there to try and help them with the blockers as opposed to come up with the actual solutions because there were people a lot 
cleverer than me who understood the platform migrations and the developments that were needed. Um, and we had m- amazing technology partners as well that were just down the road. So yeah, I think it was just a case of making people work together to, you know, to, to find those solutions. It's so often the case that technology is asked to do something, goes away and does it and brings it back. And it's not what was hoped for because there hasn't been communication in between. And so it's that point about being really clear and making hard decisions because it was a very tricky program, but allowed us to get to and a kind of a minimum viable product at the end that could then be used as a baseline for the next sort of 10 years. And you mentioned it there. How did you or how do you get everyone on the same page? Because I think in hindsight, it sounds easy when you've got 500 people. And and to your point, anyone who's listening to this who's worked on a program knows the different what IT want versus the business want, etc. Actually, how did you do that for such a sort of critical program to the bank as, as the mortgage was? Yeah, it was quite old school back then. It was very much command and control. It's much more collegiate now, I'm glad to say. But whilst the program has deviated and moved around, it comes to a point where you have to work together or else it's not going to succeed. And we got to that point where our supplier told us that they couldn't deliver the solution they wanted and basically evaporated in front of us. And at that point, everyone suddenly realized that we had to really focus, work together, get down to the absolute minimum that we could to deliver on time for the core brands or else the bank wasn't going to be able to sell mortgages at a specific date, mortgage conduct of business. So that then focused the mind. And the, you know, we use that as a catalyst to just say, right, get rid of all the stuff that we don't need. Let's focus on the basic platform, the basic functionality. You know, what do we need to operate day one, day two, day five, day 10? So that kind of really helped. It was definitely not an easy path. And, you know, there were always going to be you know, factions that were trying to pull one way or another. But I think that absolute clarity of the deadline looming is what we kind of ended up with. Well, then I'll, I'll, I'll move on to the ABN AMRO piece and, and sort of I'll let you take me where's best in terms of actually, is it the mortgages program? Is it, is it ABN AMRO? Because I think that program was obviously a success for yourself. You were then sort of taken into that ABN AMRO role where I think you, you ended up with a team of about 2,000, which for many people is a large business on its, on its own, let alone just a function of a, a bank. It's almost the same question again, but with that scale point of actually, how did you make that step up? And I guess the other side of it, you mentioned, you know, that financial crime piece was an area that was completely new to you. Actually, how did you sort of upskill yourself to the level you needed to while managing what was then a global team and sort of delivering what you needed to for the bank all at the same time? Yeah, I think on the the team, we were really lucky and we had excellent country leaders. So I probably only had a couple of hundred people, well, probably a hundred in NL and maybe five or 600 in the UK. So we had the bulk of our team in Poland and India and had excellent country leaders there who did all the hard work. You know, they found the people, they tr- recruited the people, they, you know, motivated them day to day. We provided the kind of the what. So we we provided the frameworks and structures for them to execute their roles and the change, you know, and controls around it and improvements. So I think, again, finding a group of people or working with a group of people is absolutely key. And those country leaders were excellent. And we also had, you know, functional leaders as well. The financial crime thing was terrifying, quite frankly. You know, I I, I met with the, the director at the time and he said, you know, I'm actually based in the Netherlands myself. I've moved over with my family. I've got a, a wider role, but I need someone to run the AML team for me and learn about it and copy it across the globe for, for RBS. And I just thought it'd be a great idea. So um went home and had a conversation and 
we, we sort of went over and had a look and it looked like a great place to live. So we exported the family. But I walked into a room with a hundred experts in financial crime, principally AML sanctions. And it was terrifying because just I just didn't know what language they were talking. Not because they were speaking Dutch, because they weren't. They were speaking better English than I was. But there were a thousand different acronyms, all sorts of different systems, platform processes, controls that I just had no idea about. And that was probably the most frightening bit. You sort of sit there thinking, what have I done? <laughs> but, you know, after you get over that initial pit and you start to learn and I just wrote everything down I wrote all the acronyms down every time someone said an acronym I asked them to explain it to me and they just must have thought I was dumb because I spent you know the first three six months writing down acronyms on my big whiteboard but then I started to get to grips with it and I started to understand a bit more and then we started to grow and that's really where the, the teams were established in India and, and Poland and Singapore and US all doing basically the same things but um, reliant on their local regulations so again it's about relying on the the, the clever people around you who do know this stuff and giving them the confidence that if they've got a problem that they can tell you and you'll try and help them fix it rather than blaming them for bringing you the problem in the first place. I, I love the idea of this whiteboard just filling up with oh, uh, stacked of, yeah. of acronyms. And your point there around sort of trusting the people, I think makes a lot of sense. I guess thinking for my listeners kind of in running those teams, you know, we, ha- we haven't even got onto the sort of consulting time yet, but we'll come back to is 100, 500, 2000, they're very different numbers of of people. And if you sort of read any business books, particularly in Silicon Valley, they talk about, you know, some people are great at leading businesses of 10, some 100, etc. You've been through those different stages. And I guess, maybe it's nuances on that sort of trusting your people piece. Maybe it's something else of looking back at you, were there any big ticket things that you found? You know, this is the fundamental difference between succeeding at 2000 to 500, 500 to, to 100, that people kind of stepping into those roles listening could learn from as well. I think it's it's no surprise it's around communication and, and it's just finding as many communication routes as you can and using them effectively. With 100 people, you can probably know just about all of them. I'm not very good with names, but I can probably, you know, at least know the people in the room. Once it gets up above that, it's tricky. And with 2,000, you've got no chance. But I think there we have many different communications uh, methods, sort of direct and indirect, written, verbal, video, all sorts. And I think it was just utilizing those and also going and seeing the people themselves. So I think that was definitely one of the things that, that I learned from the, the guys at ABN AMRA was going and seeing. And if you've got a team in Poland or you've got a team in India or Singapore or US, getting out and talking to them, sitting next to them, particularly the people that are pressing the buttons and using the platform that you've delivered or you're developing, then you'll find out the really good things and the things that aren't so good about that platform. And I always encourage the team to go and do that as well. So we were lucky in, in the fact that we had the opportunity to, to go and see our end users. And, you know, we didn't have too many restrictions back then. And so, you know, I was happy to see my team out and about as much as I was really. I love that piece around going and seeing because it's one of those things that when you do and you see the results, it seems obvious. But I, I also think it can be one of the hardest things to fit into your diary when you've got you know steering committees, board meetings, etc. How did you and your leadership team actually make time for that? Was it just you, know, you did or yeah. was there any other structures you put in place to really enable you to do it? I think you have to force yourself. So we made sure that our quarterly boards were somewhere other than head office wherever head office was and that meant that everyone could plan and there were no kind of excuses so and it was it's only once a quarter and you may have been out for three or four days depending on where it was so it's definitely doable it's not like you stop work 
you just work somewhere else. And that can be on a plane or on a train or, you know, in, in someone else's office. So I, I think fitting it in is just an excuse for kind of bad planning, really, because now we do the same uh, here. Each, uh, every eight weeks, we go to one of the offices and it's just fitted in. You fly in one day, you've got dinner that night, you've got board the next day and you fly out that night. It don't, you don't stop work for two days. You're just working around the other stuff that's going on. And it, to be honest, you shouldn't have to work flat out constantly all the time anyway, because you've got a, a decent team around you. So, you know, being on a plane and out of communication for two or four hours, it shouldn't be the end of the world. And even when you're going to India or Singapore, you know, as long as it's planned well, you can still get stacks of work done. If anything, the downtime on the plane is quite handy. I know they've got Wi-Fi now and you, you can, it's, getting, it's getting so you can't avoid them. But yeah, I just think it also means that the teams you've got or the people you've got in these other countries actually see you, you know, and you're able to chat and you're able to attend events and ceremonies. You know, we, we spent half of our time probably attending awards ceremonies and events when we're in, in sort of India and in Poland, because it's so important for those people to get the recognition for the work that they do. No, it's, it's a great point. And I think particularly in the world we now are sort of post-COVID, I think that travel piece has become much more accepted. The yeah, the idea that you can work if you're, if you're not at your desk in, in your office. Um, we've all got much better at working on trains and, and traveling and commuting, haven't we? You mentioned it around sort of actually the what you go and see, the kind of the awards, the recognition seems so powerful and, and that end user piece as well. And, and is that particularly with a sort of change mindset, if you put in a system going, seeing who's using it, what are they actually, you know, how are the requirements being lived day in, day out? Is that the kind of thing you really focused on? Yeah. And I think it was just by accident, really. You, you sort of, you're in, a, in an office with three or 400 people who are doing processing of, you know, sanctions or onboarding. And you just want to go and say hi and talk to them. And you sit down next to the person that's using a system that you may have some knowledge of. And you see they're flicking between seven different screens and scraping data around. And you're kind of trying to work out why they're doing that. And so that's really where the, the insights come because ultimately, if we can make the end users more efficient and less, you know, reduce the opportunities for error, re- increase automation, it means that, you know, hopefully we'll get better outcomes. So yeah, I, I just think I never, it, it was better not to be structured in those. It was better just to walk into a massive room and then just go on again, talk to that person over there. And it would scare the hell out of them to start with. But after you kind of sat there for a couple of minutes and listened and, and then wandered off to the next one, you know, you were kind of, it was, it was just a great thing to do, I think. Yeah, I, I can imagine the uh, the the boss of the two thousand person organisation coming to sit next to you would, would evoke fear in most people. Yeah, but you know you're not you're not there to criticise them; you're just there to learn. I think you know as soon as you ask about the photograph on the desk or the fact they've got a, a certificate over here, you know it's, it breaks the ice quite easily. No, definitely. Well, then, but we we could spend, I imagine, a whole conversation on RBS. But I, I'm keen to move us forward, I guess, into your second stint in consulting, if you like, where where I think you've stayed now since then, and. Maybe the best place to to start this is almost what led you to launch FS101 and and, and leave RBS. And I'll kind of let you take that story in whichever order you think makes the most sense. Yeah, I mean, RBS is an enormous organization going through a heck of a lot of change. And, you know, it's a very difficult time for the company. And I didn't, I did, I did. 11 years through and I saw the highs and some of the lows. And I guess I was found myself in a position where I could see it was going to take an awful long time for them to achieve the goals they'd set. And I wasn't necessarily that keen on staying for that whole massive journey, which is still going on now. And so I was struggling a bit with leading the team and kind of passing on the the messages because I was struggling to sort of believe them in the short term myself, you know. And so I thought, well, I looked around and I could see some friends and colleagues who are out on their own and doing quite well and they 
financial crime space, you know, did have quite a few businesses, startups running. So I just thought I'd best to leave and crack on, you know, on my own. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I guess the leaving part, well, I, I'll let you fill in the gaps for it because the leaving part to your point, it sounds like you, you know, you'd had a good time with RBS, your contribution had run its course. You didn't want to go on to that next phase. And, and that makes sense. There's an interesting question, particularly for anyone listening who's either industry side running a big team like you were or, you know, is in a large consulting firm running a practice. It's quite a leap to then go from a team of 2000 to, to a team of one. You know, there's many people who would have said, well, you know, you've got family, mortgage, etc. I'm going to go and do that for another bank or another consultancy. Kind of, you mentioned that you and your wife had a chat about moving to the Netherlands. Was this another chat around the dinner table? How did the decision to actually go out on your own come about? I'm sure, really, if I'm absolutely honest. And I, I think I, she could see I wasn't, my wife could see I wasn't that happy. We were fine. You know, we'd moved um, back down south to Leamington and we moved to Amsterdam and then we come back to London. So we were kind of bobbing along quite happily and I didn't have another job. So it wasn't like I was hunting and, and going to move. I, I knew I had a three months notice period and was fairly confident I could do something in that time. So I resigned and, you know, they kindly offered, you know, a bit more money and stuff like that. And I just said, no, thank you. Just like to focus on my transition. So that was fine. So clean breaks, the way to do it. I think if you give any hint of maybe staying, then the company's likely to grab it. And before you know it, you've got an extra 10 grand or something and you sort of a bit miffed because you didn't go. So I sort of rehearsed in my head the fact that I wasn't going to back down um, and I was going to leave. And that would, was fine because it helped my boss because it meant he could, he knew there wasn't any point in pursuing it further. It was kind of a, a three-month countdown. And, you know, that's what happened. An orderly, orderly thing. I, I After a couple of months, I started looking and thought, you know, this is okay. Maybe I'll go on my own and started you know, knocking on a few doors. And I was approached by a headhunter who had a job at State Street with a financial crime program, but it was a permanent job. I'd didn't want a permanent job, but I thought, well, I could probably do the practice because I haven't had an interview for a while. So I went along for a practice, met one of the MDs, and she was excellent, really liked her, and they offered me the job. And uh, it would have been really easy to say yes and go to work for State Street, it's a fantastic company. But I said no. I said, I'm setting up on my own, and this is, you know, I explained to the headhunter that's what's going to happen, and he said go anyway. So she, you know, we kind of parted ways. And then on that was maybe the Friday, and on the Monday I got a phone call from the headhunter that said they'd like you to do it as a contractor so that kind of at christmas i then set up my company uh incorporated it in december wrote a contract or nicked a contract from somebody else sent out a statement of work and i started just before christmas at state street on their financial crown program wow well all's well that ends well in that case now the decision to take i mean i it's obviously worked out but to hand your notice in without something yeah. coming in mean, you mentioned it was it just that confidence yeah, was it more is that kind of how you're wired like you like having that kind of you know you made the decision you want the cut off and then you look next because i suspect there's people listening here thinking that's quite a leap of faith yeah it's definitely easier to get a job when you've got a job so the fact that i was still employed by rbs at the time had that kind of safety net but you know the clock was ticking i think the pressure helps because it kind of you know you're not fat and happy to, uh, to, you know, to, to coin a phrase or I wasn't then. So I, th I think that's key. Uh, you know, I, I did, I knew if I could just stay and, you know, so many people have, so many people have stayed waiting to get paid off and some of them are still there and uh, waiting to get paid off. And no doubt when they do get paid off, it'll be great. But I was much happier to be out on my own and trying to do something on my own than I would have been just kind of cruising along, uh, you know, in a, in, organ in a big organization. So I think there, you, for me, the pressure helped. No, I, I think it's a great point, Phil. And, and like you say, it, it focuses the mind. I think otherwise, 
that kind of apathy towards a job can keep you there. Like you mentioned with the kind of, you know, you get a pay bump and a year later, you're still doing the same thing you don't quite like. And actually, when you've got the fire to change, why not change then? Yeah, I think, uh, I remember how, what was I, 45 at the time? So yeah, it just seemed, yeah, it just seemed right for me. Um, and so I trusted that instinct and just went for it. The, you know, State Street was a brilliant organisation. You know, they had lots of challenges, but they weren't really sure how to tackle them. And so they brought in, they did the right thing, brought in some outside expert help to help them focus on the really important things as opposed to the big long list of scary things that nobody understood. I brought in a team of maybe four or five people, all people I worked with before and trusted. And that was the start of my little company. I left after six months and left the team there. They did about another six to nine months and actually four of the five ended up with full-time jobs at State Street and a couple are still there now. So that was brilliant. I went on to Deutsche Bank at uh, that point and is working on their mega financial crime program and that's sort of when i bumped into p2 and you know that was just the start of the next phase really well i, w- I want to come on to that i think one last question just because it it intrigues me and and then let, let's move on to that you know what you've teamed me up for with p2 of how did you find that shift going from the role you had where you had two thousand people you know very senior leadership role back into okay you know i doubt you'd be there sort of requirements gathering but in a program delivering you know you mentioned you had a team of four or five how did you find that shift almost back the other way i think it was great fun so i was requirements gathering you know we uh, not to that extent but we we had reports that would come in from various different regulators and various different experts and we had to sift through them and work out what the really challenging things were to fix so i was kind of setting the agenda holding the steering groups you know working with the leadership team working with my team and setting it all up to be you know, delivered, which is what they ultimately did. It was just great fun to be hands-on, really. I've always, I've, I guess I've always been fairly self-sufficient and fairly hands-on. So even when we, you know, we had our sort of bigger teams and um, we're still fairly hands-on then, I think. So that helped. I think, it, again, if you were an ivory tower consultant used with people outside who did all the work and you sat in your big fancy corner office and, you know, surveyed the land and occasionally did the odd bit of QA, then it'd be terrifying. But I really enjoyed running steering groups, you know, is what I had been doing previously, sitting in, you know, sitting in these meetings and working with compliance and leadership and, fr- you know, front office, back office, trying to get them people to understand the, you know, the depth of the challenges, but that there were straightforward solutions. That's great fun. And then luckily the team would then pick pick up those ideas and, you know, help to deliver them within the organisation. Let's move on to the P2 piece then, because you, know, you mentioned you'd started your firm up, you'd got that first team in. I mean, that, that sounds like a very good start for your own consultancy, sort of landing a team of five of you and then, then building out your second client. How did that P2 conversation start? Maybe take us on the journey where P2 entered and then we can dive in from there. Yeah, I'd worked with P2 back at RBS days because they were one of the companies that was involved in the RBS NatWest integration. So they were the kind of PMO engine for the RBS NatWest integration, huge piece of work. And, it, you know, immensely that, that little central hub was incredibly important. Sort of it's helped me to understand what PMO can bring to a, a big program. So I'd worked with them back then and kind of just weaved in and out since, hadn't really worked directly with them. But, you know, we're just in touch and... I can't remember how, but I just ended up chatting to to Pip, who was the, one of the founders. And I think he had kept in touch over time and sort of watched me go through RBS and out the other side and into my own little company. And, you know, I was, Pip had done this several times. You know, he was probably on his second or third buy and build by then. And so 
just met up and chatted about what was going on and I explained how the company was going and what, what, what we were doing. And it was not financial crime wasn't something that they were doing. They were much more PMO program management transformation focused. So this they saw as a, another potential arm that you could add to the P, the P2 uh, kind of portfolio. And as you said, you know, maybe you can come and work for us. You know, I might be a director, you know, look after one of the chunky areas like after financial services. And at the time I was spending my, maybe my Sundays doing invoicing and billing and worrying about VAT and, you know, trying to work out how zero worked on my laptop. And that was the less fun side. And what I'd realized was if I was going to grow much more, I'd need to start employing people to do admin stuff because I couldn't do delivery as well as all the admin. And I didn't really want to add fixed cost. So Pip said, you know, why don't you join us and all that stuff will go away. You know, we've got accountants, we've got account managers, we've got your administration team. So you can focus on the stuff you like doing and we'll do the other stuff. So, you know, as I said, they, they, uh, kindly offered to buy my company and give me a bit of theirs so at the time it just seemed like a sensible next step really no i think the, the way you describe it philip it's interesting you mentioned around the strategy so that buy and build strategy one of, one of my recent guests more from the marketing side it's part of an organization where you know, part of that growth has been that inorganic that buy and build piece and i think in our sector there's always a nervousness around because you're buying people actually what are you buying i hadn't planned to go here and stop me if we can't talk about it. how did you and Pip approach that to almost make it work for both sides because I think you know for listeners who are considering that sort of growth option it makes a lot of sense you know, bring an expertise like yourself there's also that kind of nervousness I imagine of or if you join and then walk out the door how, how did you bring something that worked for both of you and kind of got both of you comfortable that it would I guess keep you both protected and deliver the upside you wanted I think there was a trust there so we'd known each other for quite a while by then and I think it's something we've subsequently seen with the deal that P2 did and the journey that we're on now is it's often best to have these relationships grow over time rather than meet someone and sell the next day. So I think what we see in the market is the best deals are done by companies that know each other and have maybe worked on a joint venture or work side by side and start to understand the cultures. And that's really what it was, is I'd worked with them before I understood the culture. You know, they'd worked with me and sort of knew I had a similar set of values uh, to them. So I think it was sort of, you start it with the values, then you do it on the deal. So the fact that they'd given me a bit of their company meant I was intrinsically interested in the company being successful. The fact that they were really keen on the financial crime piece meant that they were keen to invest and they weren't going to throw loads of money at it, but it did mean that we got a number of clients over subsequent years that were in that space. And it's just something different to talk about, something to differentiate you as a business, because it is, you know, quite a challenging place to work. So I just think there was an alignment of values. There was an understanding that we were both kind of going in the same direction and that I could help them maybe achieve their goals and that, you know, they could help me achieve some of mine. I really love what you say about actually building those relationships over time because you know, ultimately people, businesses are about trust yeah. and having that trust is is really key. And I'm assuming it was a kind of a one-to-one conversation in terms of, you know, PIP approach to you had that discussion, but were there any others in the running or was it very much P2 suggested it and it sounded good to you, so you, you joined? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure I could have done something and gone, so I had no knowledge of the market at all. So, I, uh, you know, I've got... You know, I now know about the brokers that sit in that space. I know about all you know, many of the companies that operate um, at this medium level, maybe not the, the small level where I was. But yeah, I think, again, it's just a practical solution. I'm sure I could have invested slash wasted a year going and finding alternative bids. But, you know, what they seem to offer looked like good value for me. Um, it looked like a sensible offer, had nothing really to compare it with. But again, how much time do you want to waste, you know, when you could be just getting on with building the next thing? Yeah, well, and I think it's it's a really good point as well. 
almost for anyone listening, kind of we're in an age where entrepreneurship is is sexy and cool, and yeah, you know, hopefully we're moving out of it. But almost an insinuation, if you're not an entrepreneur, you're, there's something lesser about being an employee. But I think you you hit on the key point of not everyone wants to spend their Sundays on zero, and actually you can have a lot of success, if not more, being part of something bigger than trying to have you know a small pie of your own. Yeah, and you, know, it's it's great to have that, and I think it is it does suit some people. Um, but you have to be good at, or at least competent at everything to make it successful or else you're going to end up with a lot of bad debts or a load of VAT that you should have paid, but didn't. So I think you have to become almost a jack of all trades if you're going to do it on your own, unless you can find a couple of like-minded people who have got different skills and you can spread it around between you. But when you're on your own, it's very much you, you know, that's, that's all you have to then employ people to do the stuff that you can't do. And then it starts to become quite lumpy in the fixed cost space. Definitely. And obviously, we, we, we will talk more about Valcon and, and sort of the growth of P2 that led to that acquisition, because to your point, the, the story is one that ended very well, and the decision to, to roll your firm into P2 was a wise one. I'd be keen to touch on actually your kind of, I guess, progression within P2, because you joined, you mentioned, you know, you're brought in as a director, move very quickly into to running the financial crime team, and, and ultimately becoming the CEO of the entire group. And actually, how did that sort of take me on that journey as well because was that something that was on the cards when you first spoke with Pip was that something that came up how, how did that come not really I mean you know Pip has great plans and always has had great plans and so it may have just been a sort of throwaway thing but I never really took much notice even if it was mentioned I moved into a leadership team probably with eight or nine different directors across different sectors and I just focused on financial services so I was out for the first year delivering full-time at Deutsche Bank so just pop back every now and again to sort of attend meetings and you know work on sort of sales calls and lead gen and all the kind of normal stuff but I wasn't really in the office much for that first year then I finished at Deutsche went on to Comex Bank so again I was just sort of skipping between clients very much delivery focused so not really running P2 I was just the head of financial services and the head of financial crime. Yeah. So, you know, and P2 was just bobbing along, really. It was sort of going through a few peaks and troughs. And, you know, Pip was very much focused on the future. He stepped back into BCEO about six months before uh, I took over. And he, I understand the discussion with the board whether he was going to BCEO for six months and then you know, collectively they would find a new CEO. So Pip could move up to chairman, which is fine. That was We knew that was going on in the background. They never really found anyone who had the right attributes. So towards the end of that period, Pip sort of took me to one side and said, you know, there's a chance that you could be CEO. And I was a little bit surprised and taken aback. And so we had a couple of chats about it and he became more clear that that was a good outcome for everyone. So I went and saw the board, just presented my ideas, really, probably I suspect you can call it an interview. And then in November, I was offered a job, November 2019, which was great. You know, there were, again, it was just about really working with the people around you to try and be successful. But yeah, a couple of people left during that time um, and a couple of people joined and we went on from there. You've probably asked it. and I, I, I'm going to ask because I'm sure someone listening would want to know, what, why you? You know, you mentioned you'd, you'd been spent, it's in, you, you're probably sort of paraphrasing, but you spent most of your time out delivering for clients. You're kind of, you know, you're a delivery focused consultant. That isn't often the route that leads to running a consulting firm. You know, you've got all the other things around it. So, what, what was it that Pip, why you are not one of the other directors in the room? I just, again, it's the relationship and it's the trust, I guess, that had grown up. So, Pip, Pip could see that I was just focused on growing our part of the business and delivery. I was happy to help other people, happy to come to the meetings, but I wasn't going to muck around in the 
general crap that goes with running a consultancy. So people get very carried away with building things that they then try and sell to clients who don't want them. It's much easier to go and listen to a client and help them fix a problem than it is to try and force them to sell something you spent six months building. So I think he saw my attitude towards some of the stuff that was going on and it was similar to his and that probably helped. And just the willingness to learn, I guess, and and to, you know, to want to grow the business in a sensible in a sensible way, and you know, to achieve the the returns that the our private equity backers, uh, Lonsdale Capital Partners, had at the time. I think you make a very good point, Phil, around listening to clients and not trying to sell the the latest thing your consultancy's built. It's it is the curse of our industry. It's horrific, and it, you know, it's it uh, it's very easy, and it's it's really easy now. It's quite t- it's tough out there now, and it's really easy to turn in and focus on packs and decks and stuff and tools. And that's not what gets the business growing is talking to clients. So get, and the, the chat at the moment that we're having around our table is get out and about speak to clients, go and have coffee, go and have teams meetings if you have to, but go and see them because that's the way you'll find out what's really worrying them. Don't take a thing you want to sell them because they won't want it and, you know, stop wasting time on building things that people don't want. Even if you're convinced they do, someone comes and asks you for a thing. That's great, but don't spend six months building a thing and then wonder why it takes two years and nobody ever buys it. No, I I, I completely agree, and, and nicely takes us on to probably the obvious question you're expecting: of how did running a consultancy differ from running a banking department? It's a different set of outcomes, isn't it? The, the you know the 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 bank was there to provide services to customers that were fairly clear and fairly well established. Although there's innovation involved and you want to do things faster, better, cheaper, etc. The things you were doing were fairly straightforward. You know, you're doing mortgages, collections, recoveries, current accounts, loans, savings, investments, etc. The principles are all there. Whereas consultancy, you're I think you're trying to learn off the innovators around you as to how you can help clients deliver those solutions faster, better and with less risk. So it, although it is a people business, again, you don't have as many physical outputs as a bank might have. So if you're filling cash machines, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you've got to fill the cash machines and people can tell when you haven't. It's not the same in consultancy because you're you're kind of there to facilitate outcomes. You're probably working on time and materials, possibly on fixed outcomes, maybe on managed services, but you're providing services rather than things. And whereas in the banking side, there were lots of things being provided. And that may be a mortgage product as a thing. But, you know, as opposed to helping somebody to deliver that platform. So it's still people and all the principles still carry, but it feels different because you're in a, you know, trying to run a leaner organization to provide, you know, services to companies that are trying to change and maybe don't want to change. Yeah, I, I like your point around. Yeah, if people a cash machine is very obvious if it hasn't been delivered. It's not not always the same with certain change projects. No, no. Um, and you mentioned around the the PE investment. Was it Lonsdale Capital Partnership? Lonsdale will put back P two. Yeah, that's right. And so, if my chronology is right, and stop me if it isn't, you took over the CEO role in effect, sort of at the start of what was then to be a two year growth. I think doubling in size of the firm. So. While I know there's a team who obviously had a lot to do with that, I suspect you had some of something to do with that as well. And I'd, I'd love to know, yeah, how did you and the team actually achieve that growth? Because doubling any business is hugely difficult. What were some of those, you know, looking back, some of those key focus areas that enabled you to do that? Also, as we all know, during the pandemic, which added a whole other dimension. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were lucky. So lucky in inverted commas. We sort of 20 back into 2019 was when um, I started and I at the same time we had a new finance director join Barry Shaw and a new chief commercial officer who we'd got as part of a, 
uh, an acquisition deal, Rich Morris. And so we three came together at that time, you know, under Pip as the chairman, and we were very much the ones that were running it. So between us, we had a very different set of skills. Barry was the numbers guy, but also understood commercials. Rich was very much the sales, delivery, you know, marketing focus around people. And I was just the guy in the middle who's sort of bobbing about. But between us, we uh, we managed to, I guess, focus our teams on, you know, what the clients really wanted. And when the pandemic hit, what the clients wanted were to know you were going to be able to turn up to work the next day. So we, uh, yeah, as it all started to happen, we emailed all of our clients and said, don't worry about us. We're virtual as of, you know, today. And so we will be there on Monday to help you carry on with whatever you're going to carry on doing. So we flipped everyone straight to virtual within 24 hours. So everyone had their their own work laptops, they had their client laptops, and we had all of our RAC FIDs or whatever, the, you know, the codes that you needed to sign in. And it just meant that the consultant, the clients we were working with at the time didn't have to worry about us. They had enough other stuff to worry about in this new and uncertain world. But we were going to be there carrying on delivering what we were doing before, or in some cases, pivoting to help them solve new problems that had thrown up as a result of the pandemic kicking off. And then it was just about the people. So we really did focus on our teams. We did loads of kind of contact. We we spoke to everybody and said, have you got the right kit? Have you got the right laptop? Do you need a screen? Do you need a chair? So we did a load of kind of stuff where we reached out to people to make sure that they were okay or as best as they could be, because everyone had a different situation. And some people ended up coming into the office because their home situation meant they couldn't work from home. So that was unusual, but it meant that we hopefully did the best that we could to make our people function appropriately. We provided guidance on, you know, the the best ways to work, how to kind of keep everything secure, how to set up and, you know, run meetings. And we did loads of sort of training on, you know, teams and stuff, whether people liked it or not. And then we just encouraged people to just help fix things really and that's that's what we ended up doing we you know we we did double the team size the sort of frontline team we probably grew our client base a bit but not massively we just expanded where we were and it meant that yeah ultimately we were just kind of our biggest challenge was finding good consultants to come and join us so uh, luckily we had in-house recruitment and they did a a stunning job of finding new people it's very strange and everyone had the same thing you'd recruit people you'd never meet them and it wasn't until kind of the christmas party in 22 when we made maybe met some of these people um, for the first time, which is quite funny. But that was the main focus was on keeping the standards high. So the people that we bought in were appropriate to be joining us in quite a challenging environment, you know, with clients who are going through lots of different issues that we hadn't really experienced before. But yeah, I, there was definitely a bit of luck in there, a bit of good timing and some really good teamwork. You know, we, we phoned around two or three times everyone just kind of any time during the week we split we split the, the whole company down into three and one of us would phone and just say hi how are you so it wasn't the business call it wasn't a client call it was just a how are you type call and after you got over the initial shock it was actually okay and you found out about stuff that you'd never find out about and we learned a lot and it made meant that we could be a bit more effective we sent out loads of silly care packages you know around Wimbledon we sent out tennis balls and and cream teas Halloween is the obvious you know flood and flood with sweets so and we did lots of online stuff I mean everyone did quizzes until they came out of your ears I can't never face one of those again but we had sort of big events as well where we had people in to come and we had a comedian who came in and did online stuff I'm sure it was hell but it was really really funny and really enjoyable um, so we tried we tried to learn of good things around us. And that was part of the challenge with the leadership team is if you see something or hear something or read something that sounds cool, can we copy it? Can we do it? Can we nick something from it? 
and we did a lot of that where we saw somebody do something that looked like it might be fun and we tried it. So there was definitely a lot of that trying things out to see if they worked and if they did carry on, if they didn't, then just bin it and try something else. No, I, I really like that. And I, I think your point around actually you grew the team, but not the client base a lot is quite an interesting one as well. And I guess harks back to what you said of speak to your clients about what they need help with, because I suspect during those COVID times, your clients needed help with a lot of things. Oh, like completely different. Yeah, we had some retail clients and we, where we were doing working in store with them and the stores shut. But all of a sudden, their online presence became massively important because that was the only way they could interact with their clients. So our teams flipped from physical store support and projects into, you know, how can they get their online presence up and more sexy and more slinky and, uh, you know, a better fit. So, yeah, I mean, the, the bigger clients, it didn't change an enormous amount, but some of them, particularly on the retail side, you know, it was a, it was a massive change for them, massive challenge. And we've obviously touched on the the COVID side of the challenges. I'm conscious with almost doubling in size, I suspect there would have been other growing pains around just when you introduce 100% more people, naturally things change. And sometimes you you only find out about that after the fact. Looking back, was there anything almost you wish you'd done quicker or if you were doubling again, you're going to do in a different way next time? I think you've got to fail fast. So there's a thing about, there's a reluctance to kind of make a decision if you've bought somebody in who appears to be wrong for the business. And there's a thing about failing fast and recognising that a mistake may have been made. And it's probably better for them and for you if that mistake is corrected quickly. And either they're put in a different position or they, you know, go on to something else. So yeah, not hanging on because it's the safe option. It's definitely, you know, making that decision and acting on it. You know, we pretty much did that throughout that time. But, you know, you can see it in organisations that, you need to make those tough decisions and then stick by them, not kind of bottle out and go another route. And this might a bit to how you you ended up starting your original consultancy in the first place. It, is that simply just a sort of knowing it's the right decision and a confidence piece? Because I I imagine when you're trying to grow quickly, you've got PE backers, you've got clients to service. It can it can sometimes feel easier to keep hold of that underperformer if they're not underperforming to a level that's kind of I guess detrimental to the clients. It sets the wrong tone, doesn't it? If if some of your people are grafting, really pushing it hard, you know, putting in the hours and just in their peripheral vision, there's somebody who's not, then if that persists, it just undermines the confidence in those people and their willingness to, you know, to go the extra mile. So I I think you've got to realise that the impact it has can be quite material. And it's never easy, but it's better to have that straightforward conversation, you know, the sort of it's not me, it's you type conversation and go from there. Because then at least the people that are, you know, really grafting can see you know, that n- you're never going to get rid of all the coasters, but that, you know, some of the people who are maybe on the margins are, are going on to do other things. No, I, I think it's a great point and, and reminds me of uh, a former guest always said, uh, either they think you see it and you're ignoring it or they don't think you're seeing it and neither outcome is particularly good no not really no i think that brings us right up to speedfield because obviously at the start of last year p2 was acquired by valcon and i think you you alluded to it earlier in our conversation around that was the the kind of the second i think um lonsdale capital partners were looking towards an exit but i don't want to explain the story that i wasn't part of so maybe I'll, i'll hand to you in terms of actually where valcon entered was it always the plan to you know join another organization actually was that something that came from left field T- tell me about the the valcon piece yeah so it was lonsdale were definitely on a, an exit route they they'd done their numbers which was perfect for them uh you know looking to move on to the next fund 
and they were really good backers because they just supported us you know through those times in particular they just let us run the business which is fantastic so many backers try and get involved and run the business for you and that's just the worst thing you can do in the world so you know kudos to them for just letting us get on with it we knew there was going to be an event we weren't sure what the event was going to be and so we sat down with you know Lonsdale and just said what are the options and they said well you can go the best options for you as the size we were was to go either industry so you or by, by a big industry client or go for another PE company or PE backed company. And there was no real clear decision at the time. So we ran a dual track process where we released our IM to the market, had 15 or 20 firesides, which is the little kind of a very strange phrase, but a little, you, know, you just kind of go and meet them um, and have a chat. And after that, again, it just reduces through each stage. You go to a first offer, then you go for second offer and final. And at each stage, it kind of reduced down to a smaller number of interested parties. A bit like um, I was talking about before, we'd known or Pip had known Valcon for about 18 months at that point. And really interesting company, you know, going great guns, seemed to have a similar value set to us. And so whilst we had a couple of other people in the running, they were definitely our preferred partner. And we were doing our numbers, you know, we were we were growing fast, we were growing well, good revenue numbers, good EBIT numbers, and a good story, which, you know, you sort of learn as you go along that you do need a good story as well. And so as we got towards the end and we were getting sort of final offers, we were leaning towards Valcon and that was great. You know, they, they did come in with a, a good final offer, which is acceptable to principally Lonsdale, <laughs> but us as well. And then it was down around who stays and who goes. So, you know, you sort of get down to that point where you work out what the, the future company is going to be. And some of the P2 backers were keen to move on. Um, so took their money off the table and a few of us were keen to carry on. So we did. And it was interesting because we went into that process really clear on what we did as a company. But when we sat down with the potential buyers, they had no idea because we were using very much industry terminology. So we had to change the way we presented ourselves so that so that the P houses in particular could understand what we were doing. And that was quite tricky. But we, you know, just changed our language really. So it made sense to them because last thing you want is for an IM to land on a PE's desk. They take one look at it, don't understand it and put it in the bin. So you have to put it in language that anyone can understand, which is, you know, one of the sort of key learnings. But no, very lucky, really happy. Valcon it's actually first consulting at the time, subsequently renamed to Valcon, but they came over to see us a couple of times. Um, and here bought a couple of the leadership team. And each time we seem to have lots in common. And, you know, yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, it, it, the last month or so was fairly heavy because the lawyers get involved, but ultimately we knew it was the right thing to do. So you just sort of fight your way through. No, and I, I think some really good advice there. For, I, I, I do want to come on to what is, what's the last year been like, but you intrigued me again, just for any listeners who are thinking of going down that PE route around that IM. When you say the language, what was the difference between how you were talking about yourselves in the first instance and what you needed to change to, to appeal to that audience? I think you're so used to talking in your own acronyms so be it PMO or portfolio management or RPA and testing and all these sorts of things. And yet the people who are looking at the you as a deal are generalists, Brooke, because you're at, we were at that size of the market. So we were at the lower end of the market. So you're looking at generalists, not looking at real specialists at the bigger companies. And so we needed to present ourselves in a different way. We needed to talk about the fact that we did testing and test automation. We need to put that we, we do major transformations that we do financial crime. So you bring it up a level and use terminology that you can use in just general conversation. Because then when it does land and the person has only got half an hour to read them because they got six come in that day, they can get, just get their heads around the fact. And then the numbers speak for themselves. You know, the growth trajectory we were on was very positive. The, you know, the, the revenue was positive. The EBIT was positive. So that was kind of fine. But if they don't understand the message, 
how is that person then going to take to his boss and say, I think we should do this deal? And he goes, what do they do? And he goes, no idea. It's just not going to happen. You need to go, oh, they're a kind of a consultancy who do transformations and a bit of financial crime, and that's growing massively, and there's $2 billion over there. And, you know, they're competing with Accenture and KPMG and PwC. It's an easy story for someone to understand and then retell. And that's really what we learned is you get so caught up in APM terminology or portfolio terminology or whatever that you forget the person reading it isn't a geek in what you're doing. And if you don't make it easy for them, then they may be the right one to buy you, but they won't because they don't understand it. No, I, I think a great point. And it, it comes back to what you're saying around how to sell consulting services earlier, I think, of talking the person who you're trying to appeal to's language and things are much easier, whereas... Even their terminology. Everyone's got their own in-house terminology. Mm. And it's very easy for you just to keep using your terminology, but it's also really easy to switch to theirs. So all of a sudden you're resonating with them. You're playing back the fact that they, they call the portfolio something else, you know, or you know they don't call it a scrum team, they call it an agile scrum team or something. But if you're using their language, it starts to feel like it's their solution as opposed to someone else's. No, I, I think it's a great point. And we will touch on that, actually. I've got a couple of last questions in a minute about some of those leadership pieces of advice. But I thought I'd close this off with actually what the last year has been like, because I guess this is your second consulting merger, having merged your own firm or been acquired in your, your own firm by P2, and this is your second acquisition. How, how has this been different, similar or otherwise? Well, my, my firm was tiny, so it's very straightforward. You know, P2 had all the things that I needed and I just started using their tools. You know, Valcon is a much bigger organization and P2 was a much bigger organization. So we had lots of things that took a bit longer to do. So, you know, moving on to their core accounting platforms, you know, is, a, you know, was a fairly challenging task. Moving on to all of the internal intranets, changing everyone's uh, access, changing over all the login IDs and passwords and email addresses and LinkedIn accounts. It just takes a bit longer. But the great news was that they had a path that they're trodden before and so we were given kind of a, a sensible template to follow and we made the, the good decision to put a really good program manager on it and to give him six months full time to do it so it's very easy for someone to do it edge of desk or no it's not easy it's a nightmare for someone to do it edge of desk um, but we decided not to do that so we bought in one of our really good guys and took him off client site and asked him to help us do it I and mean, he worked very closely with the finance director for those six months and really drove it through and forced us to make the decisions at certain times, forced us to hit certain milestones. You know, because always people were reluctant to change, even uh, especially change leaders. And that really helped. So after six months, we had, we'd rebranded, we got all the innovation, all the contracts have been innovated, all the kind of gnarly stuff was done. But it was only because we put that focused, you know, high quality effort into it and committed to doing it in that time. So that was the first half of last year alongside everything else. And the rest has just been, you know, carrying on with delivery. We've got some really we inherited a, a, a bunch of data people who are amazing, you know, know their stuff inside out, but are very different to the consultancy people. We're now growing our technology practice again, a different sort of style and a different area for us to learn about. And so the second half of last year was really understanding the consulting people, understanding what data and tech could do and data and tech people understanding what consulting could do and working out where we could support each other and provide more end-to-end -end solutions, which is what we've been doing. And then going into our clients where we're strong in data and saying, hey, you like us for data, but do you realize we can do portfolio management, project management, program management as well? And so starting to do those cross sales, which is the second half of last year was focusing on that. And now we're seeing that kicking off into this year as well. 
Fantastic. Well, and, and I love the idea of actually putting someone on the sort of post-merger integration as as a project because, yeah. like you say, when when you hear about these sort of mergers and acquisitions where they don't work, it comes down to that integration and actually taking someone off client site and focusing on what is a client project internally. Exactly, yeah. So it sounds uh, like it paid dividends. And also you've got to force yourself to use the new systems. It's very easy to just look back how great it was in the old days. But it wasn't. It was just different. So if you, you've got to make sure your leadership is using the new language, is using the new platforms, is talking in the same way, because otherwise the rest of the company thinks it's okay to keep harping on about how great it was in the old days. No, I, I think some great advice. And, and a last piece, actually, Phil, before we wrap up with some closing questions I ask everyone, and this is just because I think one of the themes that's come out throughout our conversation around leadership and you know you mentioned you've, you've worked with some good leaders you know there's some tenants that you've sort of picked up and, and you mentioned one there and it's, it's a bit of a big question but listeners will know I like quite big questions is is almost from all of your career kind of for anyone listening to this any future leaders in particular you know what should they be focusing on to build their leadership you know how could they emulate your success of you know being able to run teams of 2000 being able to run consulting firms what are some of those things that people should start building now i think it's great if you can find something you're interested in and passionate about because then it will seem less like a job and so if you can find a niche or a, a thing that you're really keen on then you know that's great because it will feel you know much easier and i think that's what we're looking for now in the technology and data space is there are people that just love it and so, you know, they really want to develop their knowledge and, and ideas because they're happy to do sort of the training and investment and look at all the shiny new toys alongside the kind of day job. So I think there is a thing about finding that thing that you're passionate about. For me, it was financial crime. That was when I bumped into that, I realized it was quite exciting and, uh, and quite challenging and that there was you know, lots of investment in that space. And companies did it generally really badly and sadly still do. So I think it is that if you can find something that really interests you and excite you, then you've probably found the right place, at least for the, for the meantime. A very good piece of advice. And also, particularly when you work in industries like ours, where the, the pay is quite good, balancing that desire for a high paying job with a job you're enjoying, because like you said at RBS, you, know, you, you can stay somewhere a lot longer than you should. And that doesn't always have good outcomes. I think, Phil, this has been brilliant and takes us to our last questions. And these are ones that I ask everyone. So the first one is around books. And I should caveat this because I've had a number of guests lately tell me they don't really read business books. And if you're about to say that, that's fine too. So I'll say books, but insert your preferred medium here, which is what is the book or books you've you've gifted or have had the biggest impact on you and, and why? I, like some of your recent readers, don't necessarily read business books. I think... I think there's a title that I really liked and I sort of read half the book, I think. And it was, what got you here won't get you there. And I know it's quite a common one. It's been around for a while, but I like the phraseology because it's really easy to keep doing the things you have been doing and think you're going to get further outcomes. And it's not, it's not a bad thing, but there comes a point where you have to do things differently or else you are going to keep getting the same outcomes. And in some cases, the outcomes are great and therefore you do want to keep them. But at some points, the outcomes aren't as great. And so you need to do things differently. So I think that was one that did resonate with me. But I wouldn't say I'm a great gifter of books. I find it a bit presumptive sometimes. Yeah, I guess I'm more more podcasty and out about it. No, that, that is absolutely fine. And, and just as we are recording a podcast and I'm quite a fan, is, is there a go-to show you have or shows, plural? I tend to listen to all sorts of stuff. I don't, again, there are some fairly mainstream ones, which, you know, is on everyone's sort of top five. But I tend to just mix it up. And if somebody tells me about one that they liked, I'll listen to that. So again, I think it's about 
trying new stuff rather than just getting fixed because you almost end up getting told what to do by somebody if you kind of become a, a disciple of some sort of podcast and you find out there are another half a million people who are the same. So yeah, I think mix it up. If somebody tells you it's good, then go and try it. If it's, and if you enjoy it and listen to another one. No, I think I think great advice. Something you know, I've definitely found from. We'll compare notes after this because I've had other podcast guests who have recommended me shows that they love. And and like you, you kind of you find this whole side of you know the internet you'd never heard of and podcasts exploring things you'd never thought of. And actually, that that mix is always good. And the very last question, and and this may be a bit of a wrap up or or maybe new things, Phil. And, and this is you've got three people in front of you. One would be kind of at the start of their career in consulting one I'd, I'd say manager grade you know four five six years in if you like and one is approaching partner and the question is quite simply what what one piece of advice would you give to each of them i think the 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 junior the sort of the younger person is just say yes to all the scary stuff i think you regret the things you don't say yes to not the things you do and so if you've got the chance to work somewhere else, uh, a different industry or a different country, go and do it because you have the freedom when you're younger to do that sort of thing and get those experiences and you'll never forget them and you'll bump into all sorts of amazing people and some you'll keep in touch with the rest of your life. So I would, I think that at, at that point, you just got to get on every gig you can and go and get as much experience as you can wherever it is. And almost the more oblique the better because if you get stuck in one channel, then that kind of narrows you for the future. Whereas if you can do different things on different clients in different industries in different countries you just get better experience really like that advice and for the other two i think you said somebody sort of approaching manager approaching ma well so the manager i i realize i do managers a disservice so i make people think they should be a manager much earlier because i think i i frame this in the questions as, as sort of four to five but that kind of middle of the first phase of your consulting career you know they're they're not super senior they're not super junior um, and then the last one's that person approaching partner I think the, the mid-level is find something you're passionate about, as I mentioned before, because it just, it's just easier then because you're naturally the enthusiastic, naturally interested, naturally inquisitive. So if you can find something you're passionate about and then focus on that and then network like hell in that area, because there's, once you get into it, there'll be all sorts of interesting people that you can go and go and see and go and meet and go and have a coffee with for no other reason than just saying hi. And don't think that you need to have an agenda to go and see people. You, know, you can just go and talk about industry stuff or we've done, you know, we've done something recently and, you know, you might want to talk to them about it. So I think getting out and about and getting networked because that network will potentially stand you in good stead for anything in future. It's not a kind of necessarily helping you on your career ladder. It will just be a network that you might rely on in future. Fantastic. And then our third person is is the one approaching partner. Yeah, I think you've got to treat others as you want to be treated yourself. So you see so many people who get senior and suddenly change and start not following values and not treating people the right way. And I think that is just fatal because it just doesn't set the right tone, set the right message. So for me, it's treat others as you want to be treated yourself. I think a great place for us to end for. Well, well this has been great fun and, and thank you for making the time for it. I really enjoyed hearing about your journey and yes, ev everything that you've done with P2 and, and where you're going with Valcon. And, and I think the last question just to ask is for anyone who wants to find out more about yourself they want to find out more about Valcon where would you point them to where can they get in touch yeah so thanks for the chance Nick so I'm on LinkedIn and it's probably the best way because everything's on there just the connection stuff's on there and it's phil.rolf.valcon.com uh, so yeah thanks for having me fantastic well we'll put those details in the show notes and yes Phil thank you and enjoy the rest of your day thanks a lot cheers I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting if you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick 
at createengage.co.uk. And I really look forward to hearing from you.